Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. <laughs> hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hallo und herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Thank you all for being patient with me during horrifying classics in October and also for December Dickens this month. I do not divulge my personal life on the show very often, but what all of those delays have been leading up to is where I am now in the world, which is Nuremberg, Germany. As you can imagine, putting together a trip like this one during the middle of the pandemic and with research as its primary focus involves a lot of moving pieces. So I appreciate y'all's patience with me more than ever as I endeavor to get our recording schedule back on track. As you all may have seen from the spoilers on our website, this year we are reading Dickens' five Christmas novels. It has been a long time coming for us to sit down as a show and read these short novels or novellas together, and we have not done so yet for several reasons. The first is that this is the first year that I have felt comfortable enough with Dickens as a writer to read really what A, he is most known for in some circles, and B, what is most approachable from his collective works for a lot of people due to their length and thematic familiarity. I've also gone back and forth about how inclusive these novels are, novellas are, for individuals who are not from the Christian tradition, and after asking around, I've decided to just mention at the start of every December Dickens podcast this year that we are reviewing Dickens' Christmas novels not to be exclusivist to the Christian tradition or to discriminate against other traditions, which we in fact welcome other traditions and other viewpoints on the show because diverse discourse is essential to society, but we're reading them rather to review notable and valuable works of literature as just that, regardless of their subject matter. Now, Dickens wrote his Christmas novels between 1843, starting with the novella we're reviewing today, and 1848 with The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain. In primary source materials cited in the collected edition of these Christmas novellas from the 1930s that I have linked on the website, the author of the introduction essentially makes the claim that the Christmas novels were both successful from the perspective of the public and enjoyable to write for Dickens, so after the success of A Christmas Carol, he just continued writing them. Not all of the Christmas novellas were equally as successful, however, The Battle of Life, for example, took a while to gain favor in the public reception at that time, and you might not have heard of a few of these novellas today, but nonetheless, they were a high point in Dickens' already successful career. The Christmas novellas also capitalize on a few characteristics of Dickens' writing that he was and is known for, namely theme, here the holidays and other adjacent themes, and character-driven plotlines. David Copperfield, Pip and Great Expectations, Oliver Twist, Martin Chuzzlewit, and so many others. You all can look at our past catalog of December Dickens episodes, of which there are probably more than a dozen by this point, <laughs> to get a better idea. 
Therefore, from my experience, if you're someone who is looking to experience Dickens, to get to know his writing better, or to read him for the first time, these are great forays into his writing, and you don't have to take on the commitment, as we have in past seasons of December Dickens, of reading 800 plus page novels from him right off the bat. In other words, these novels, I feel, are the most accessible way to get to know Dickens for the first time. Of course, they do not have all of the nuance that his novels have, but nevertheless, they are complex thematically and have some really fun material to dive into. Without further ado, today's read embodies the full spirit of December Dickens. It is A Christmas Carol in Five Staves by Charles Dickens. Plot Summary We all know the plot of this novella, okay? It's the one of the most famous, if not Dickens' most famous work in terms of its plot and its thematic material, but I will review each of the staves just to get us primed for the following discussion in case you need some reminding or in case you in fact have not heard of this short novella before. Uh, and have not enjoyed the plot before. So the first stave starts off with Ebenezer Scrooge, and Scrooge is exactly what it sounds like. He is quite mean, <laughs> and he's quite uh, stressed, and he really is not a kind individual to be around, especially with regard to his work. He's a miserly kind of figure, he hates the holidays, and his business partner Marley, who is really the only person he could understand, or could understand him perhaps, has died seven Christmases before the present Christmas in the novella. So we enter in, or we come in on Scrooge, in his full Scrooge-ness. When Scrooge comes home on Christmas Day, or Christmas Eve rather, for his normal Scrooge activities, Marley, as a ghost, visits him. Marley is quite a tortured ghost. He has these heavy chains that he will rattle during the course of their discussion and obviously Scrooge, who's someone who's very tethered to the world, he's very obsessed with these worldly compulsions and worldly ideas, he's perturbed not only by this mysterious ghostly visitor of his friend who's been dead for seven plus years, but also by the torture that he sees his friend has gone through throughout that time. Marley indeed is falling apart in, well he's a ghost, but he's falling apart in a metaphorical sense. He's been moving at very quick speeds through all of his journeying. He is weary, he's a weary ghost, and he has of course these giant chains and this long line of things that he must carry with him that are indicative of the way he lived on Earth. So he has a lot of heavy burdens to carry and he has not achieved peace or enlightenment in the afterlife. Marley tells Scrooge, if you do not want the same fate as me, which is where you're headed, 
you will be visited by three more specters. Scrooge at first is like, nope, I will not take the specters, please leave. And Marley eventually convinces him is not the right word because it's not strong enough. He forces him to agree to these following few specters and gives Scrooge a timeline of when these specters will show up. Disturbed, mortified would be a better word for it, Scrooge goes to bed almost for 24 hours when he wakes up and the ghost of Christmas past enters. Let's turn to stave two. The ghost of Christmas past. Really interesting descriptions on these ghosts, by the way, we're gonna go over them in a minute. Comes and takes Scrooge through his happy, not so happy really, childhood, but they go back to Scrooge's hometown and see him as a child on Christmas and he's alone and he's re essentially just reading and really in solitude the whole Christmas but his review of his actual hometown is quite pleasurable. He gets to visit people and places and faces that he hasn't seen in how many years and that reminds him really of what Christmas is supposed to be like or was supposed to be like for his childhood and indeed we get a sense that it's the type of Christmas that he never really got which is sad but also in equal parts enlightening for him. In stave number three, the ghost of Christmas present arrives and takes him on a journey to the perspectives that he will not be seeing this Christmas theoretically if he is living it. So they go to his clerk's family's Christmas dinner and they go to his nephew's Christmas activities. They go around essentially looking at everyone be merry and also Scrooge comes up in conversation quite a bit and he's not on the whole received very favorably during these conversations. Usually he's brought up at a low or silent or morose kind of point in the conversation and some people have the graciousness to sort of bless him and wish him well this Christmas but on the whole he is not very much liked and gets a direct sense of that, of what people think and say about him behind his back and most of all on Christmas Day, which is a very festive day for the people that he's visiting. In the fourth stave, the ghost of Christmas yet to come, I think the most foreboding ghost in a lot of ways, comes and shows him a future Christmas. And this is a very dark and disturbing part of the novella. In the sense that he, uh, someone has died and they do see the burial shroud in the body and around the only people who will visit the funeral of this person who has died are business people and the business people only come on the condition that there will be lunch at the funeral. People are arguing over this person's wealth, what to do with it, and really they just end up squandering it. There's nothing really they end up doing that's worthwhile with the money that this person has left. And Scrooge, so perturbed by these images and these ideas about death near this time of year, 
asks the ghost of Christmas yet to come. In America, we call it the ghost of Christmas future. He asks this ghost, please show me essentially what it, what it should look like when someone dies. What, what it looks like for people to properly mourn someone who's died and not to just argue about these non-essential qualities of a person's life after they're gone. And he ends up being transferred to his clerk's house once again, and his clerk's small son, Tiny Tim, has died. And they are properly mourning and properly really seeing out their love for Tiny Tim. And at the end of this stave, of course, Scrooge realizes that the person from the beginning who had died and who he had seen all these reactions to their death was in fact himself, Ebenezer Scrooge. In the fifth stave, where it all comes together, Scrooge wakes up on Christmas morning and he fully repents, not only in his thoughts or his feelings, but also in his actions. He ends up making donations to charity, he buys his clerk's family a very large Christmas roast or Christmas turkey. He ends up foregoing some of his miserly ways in order to start forging meaningful connections and relationships with people. And there's a sense at the end of the novel, in the last paragraph really, when it all wraps up, that he is going to be this way for good. I read from page 88, the last page of the novella. Quote, Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city, town, or borough in the old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh, and little heeded them. For he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe for good, at which some people did not have their fill of laughter in the outset. And knowing that such as these would be blind anyway, he thought it quite well that they should wrinkle up their eyes and grins as have the malady in less attractive forms. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle, which I find as an aside quite hilarious, ever afterwards. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us, and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone, unquote. So yeah, what it <laughs> first of all, beautiful ending, so quiet in the end. Uh, you don't really expect that because the short story as a whole, it's subdued but it's quite active right there's all these ghosts visiting one after the other and he's in these like reveries all the time and then he you know wakes up on christmas morning for real and sets into action and does all these things and then there's this very philosophical quiet ending that's 
just so lovely and really ties together again all the themes in a, an overt way but also in a way that I think is um, so fitting for setting the reader up for knowing that this isn't just a one-time thing, this is a true transformation in Scrooge, which is the point of this whole Christmas novella. Dramatization. The reason why the plot of this novella is so familiar to us is, of course, because of all of the dramatizations of the novel over the past years and years. The most notable dramatizations or adaptations took place on the stage as the novella was adapted over the course of the year following its publication for the first theatrical performances. If any of you have seen Scrooge as well, the most recent film adaptation, please let me know in the comments at relevanceofliterature.com notes under the show notes for this episode how it was because it's been on my list for quite a while. I want to quickly read some quotes from the novel to give you an idea of what these ghosts actually look like because I think that the way the ghosts are described are the most different aspect of the actual story from what is written than what is popularized. Of course, what Scrooge experiences from each of the ghosts varies because in different places and at different times, the creatives in charge of various adaptations know that what will impact their audiences the most, in a sense, what will give their audiences the same gut reaction or transformation as Scrooge by the end, will also vary from adaptation to adaptation. Let's start off on page 35 with the first ghost. Page 35, quote, It was a strange figure, like a child, yet not so like a child as like an old man viewed through some supernatural medium, which gave him the appearance of having receded from the view and being diminished to a child's proportion. Its hair, which hung about its neck and down its back, was white as if with age, unquote. And then he goes on to say that this figure wore a cap, but the reason why this figure wears a cap is because really the world mandates from it that it wear this cap. There's this giant beam of light, I almost imagine like a projector, that projects from the top of this creature's head, and I assume that some of the vision, some of what Scrooge ends up seeing comes from this light and Scrooge ends up at the end being so disturbed by his Christmas past and his realization of where some of his pr uh, current tendencies come from that he takes the cap from the spirit and stuffs it on its head in order to end the first visit. Let's move to page 51. Quote, I am the ghost of Christmas present, said the spirit. Look upon me. Scrooge reverently did so. It was clothed in one simple green robe or mantle bordered with white fur. This garment hung so loosely on the figure that its capacious breast was bare, as if disdaining to be warded or concealed by any artifice. Its feet, observable beneath the ample folds of the garment, were also bare, and on its head it wore no other covering than a holly wreath, 
set here and there with shining icicles. Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face, its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanor, and its joyful air. Girded round its middle was an antique scabbard, but no sword was in it, and the ancient sheath was eaten up with rust." Unquote. I find that so interesting, not only the juxtaposition of the two spirits, they're so different. Um, they're both quite ethereal, obviously, but they're so different in, these, in the character of them. There's this childlike sort of perspective coming from the first ghost, and then the second ghost is this like genial, you can imagine, you know, at a bar, sitting down with him kind of <laughs> character. and. He has this very open presence, right? Even though what he's about to show Scrooge is becoming infinitely harder and harder. And at the end, there's this really interesting part. I think the part about the scabbard, by the way, the sheath that this ghost wears, is also important, right? Important symbolism for the story. Because the sheath is rusted over, he's not using his sword. In fact, his sword is so long out of use that his sheath is unusable. And yet he wears the sheath still as sort of this overt symbol of his relinquishment of violence. And that, in particular, is this sign that what the ghost of Christmas present is showing Scrooge, while hard, is also necessary, and it doesn't come from a violent perspective. At the end of this stave, however, on page 68, there's these two children that come out of the robes of this ghost. Quote, Scrooge started back appalled. Having them shown to him in this way, he tried to say they were fine children, but the words choked themselves rather than be parties to a lie of such enormous magnitude. Spirit, are they yours? Scrooge could say no more. They are man's, said the spirit, looking down upon them, and they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance, this girl is want. Beware them both and all of their degree, but most of all beware this boy. For on his brow I see that written which is doom, unless the writing be erased. Deny it, cried the spirit, stretching out his hand towards the city. Slander those who tell it ye. Admit it for your factious purposes, and make it worse, and abide the end. Unquote. So we have this kind of like disturbing image at the very, this is literally the last paragraph. And they, these disgusting, like disturbing images of children come out of the ghost of Christmas present. This is of course after Scrooge has seen what his colleagues and friends and family members are up to on this Christmas day. And he is left with these children, ignorance and want, and the spirit says, beware especially of ignorance. And finally, the last ghost on page 69, the very next page, quote, 
The phantom slowly, gravely, silently approached. When it came near him, Scrooge bent down upon his knee, for in the very air through which the spirit moved, it seemed to scatter gloom and misery. It was shrouded in a deep black garment, which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. Before this, it would have been difficult to detach its figure from the night and separate it from the darkness by which it was surrounded. He felt that it was tall and stately when it came beside him and that its mysterious presence filled him with a solemn dread. He knew no more for the spirit neither spoke nor moved." Unquote. This is the most peculiar spirit of them all in my opinion, because the spirit never speaks. At one point, Scrooge actually grasps the spirit's outstretched hand in order to try to get him to stop this kind of cap equivalent in that sense of the first spirit. And the spirit obliges Scrooge in a certain sense, but really there's this omnipotence about the spirit this mysteriousness about it that Scrooge cannot answer for himself and that in itself is quite disturbing and is quite unusual compared to these other spirits. And the darkness around this spirit and this sense of the outstretched hand being constant, always looking towards the future, always looking towards something worse, there's a catastrophization in this stage that I think becomes really important because it is the most dramatic, because it is the most dark of the entire novella. The word staves. I found it hilarious and so indicative of Dickens that all of these Christmas novels have different names for the organization of their parts. This novella, of course, is written in five staves, and for those non-music people or non-British people out there, a stave in British English or in the British musical system is one of the lines that is used to set up the staff where notes are placed. So on a page of sheet music, there are five lines where the notes live. And in America, of course, we would just call that collectively the staff or the staff lines. And each stave is one of those five lines. So in effect, this novella in total makes up the five lines of the musical staff, almost like it comprises the building blocks or sets up the foundation for Scrooge's new life. Haven't we reviewed this novel before? Yes, dear listener, we did review this novel during our first December Dickens series in 2018. I will link that episode in the show notes. It is episode 19 for those curious people out there. And as I often do with rereads, I thought it would be interesting to take a look back at what I noticed differently from the first time I read this novella. The most notable difference, of course, is that our episodes were much, much shorter back then and also much worse quality back then. You learn a lot in four plus years of podcasting. 
The first thing I noticed right off the bat when I first started rereading this first stave was the writing. I did not appreciate fully how great the writing was the first time I read this novella. I do remember that I read it fairly quickly and I ended up speed reading through a lot of it. So that may have detrimented or perhaps obscured my appreciation of a lot of the more technical aspects of this novel, but I super enjoyed rereading re this the second time because the writing is so smooth, it's so Dickensian. There's these long drawn out sentences, even in the quotes that I was reading earlier, especially the quote from earlier on page 88 at the end of the novel. That whole paragraph is like three sentences long and it's just conjoined by all of these various means of conjunctions and semicolons and so weiter. So it really has this sense of just rolling along and I think the pacing really benefits from that because it is such a quiet story. There's a lot of very serious themes, of course, there's a lot of movement in it, but it's still quiet, as I said, so it really benefits from the way that Dickens ends up writing and using all of these rolling conventions, and that writing is very much a theme in his overall works. His writing is so similar here than it is as it is in his full novels, for example. Secondly, this second read afforded me the perspective of not being so focused on Scrooge. I was much more interested this time in Tiny Tim, in the nephew, and in their various happenings and whereabouts within the novel. I think the first few times you encounter this story, it's such an amazing story because of the transformation of Scrooge, because of kind of how traumatized he is after the end of the fourth stage and how that really puts them into gear in the sense that he starts to become a real breathing figure, right? So he, once you can sort of put that view to the side and really just accept that view and move on, there's so much more to this short story which I enjoyed with Tiny Tim in particular. I knew that Tiny Tim was important. I felt like I was kind of annoyed by him the first time I read this because I was like, why is this, you know, small child so important? Why does Dickens spend so much time on this child? So Tiny Tim is his clerk's son and his Tiny Tim is disabled. Uh, he has to walk with sticks, is said, and he's just so small. The clerk likes to walk with him on his shoulders and Tiny Tim is this warm, big-hearted individual and he has this vivaciousness to him and this just preciousness about him that Scrooge picks up on immediately and Scrooge notices how the family interacts around Tiny Tim, how the family interacts with one another, their connections, their deep connections with one another and I think most of all these connections with people that he sees in Christmas present are something that gets the ball rolling for him about how things could be different, right? The first ghost, the whole role of that ghost was to for him to realize where 
his actions, where his feelings and thoughts come from, right? To have some self-awareness in that sense. But the second ghost gets the ball rolling and Tiny Tim is essential for that notion. Also Scrooge's nephew. Scrooge's nephew actually comes in in the first stage to say Merry Christmas to his uncle, to say hello. Um, the nephew always like invites him to dinner, which Scrooge always declines, of course. And the nephew was the nephew, the son of Scrooge's beloved sister. And he does get to visit a time with his sister, with one of the ghosts. And he realizes his nephew's role now and his nephew's connection to his sister in that sense and the nephew's just this wonderful person who would never talk badly about Scrooge and is so just optimistic in that sense so the nephew also I noticed as being really seminal to the story someone who's just this fun-loving type of figure and Scrooge sees that in him and appreciates it for the first time. Theme. The three big themes that I want to talk about with regard to this novel include transformation, remembrance, and spirituality. Transformation, of course this, the main theme of this novella is transformation, Scrooge's transformation that is, and most of all you see that in his relationships. His relationship with money changes. He becomes not so miserly and rather starts giving to charity, starts giving in a tangible slash physical way, you know, that involves a little bit more of a splurge than he's used to. His relationship with his clerk changes, where he gives his clerk an act of forgiveness for the first time and I feel that is an important scene at the very end of the novel. His clerk ends up running late on the day after Christmas and Scrooge starts to admonish him. He, Scrooge is not serious about this admonishment but tries to make it serious, seem serious. Starts to admonish him and then says, I'm going to give you a raise for being late. So there's that transformation in Scrooge's relationship with other people, with his nephew, he's much more forgiving, as I said, but also his relationship with himself, his relationship with Christmas changes. So all of these transformations, I think looking at them in the context of relationships with different aspects of his life, including people, including perhaps spirituality, is a great way to conceptualize Scrooge's transformation, not just a transformation of character, for example, but really it's a transformation that starts him off on this journey of genuine connection with the world in a way that he did not have before. There's also this really interesting like extra physical sense that there's a transformation of what Scrooge will become and a transformation of timeline. We do see in the third stave, the fourth stave, uh, the death of Tiny Tim and the family mourning Tiny Tim after his death. 
And Tiny Tim does not die, as we heard in on page 88. So there's this also there's also this sense that because Scrooge has changed, he's because he's transformed, he's also transformed his parallel timeline, which I find really interesting. The second theme is remembrance. Yeah, this is so interesting to think about as well, how we remember our past and what that memory or that active memory does for us. And as we saw with Scrooge, going back to his past gives him a kind of self-awareness that he has not indulged in before. And there's a sense that he was too caught up and he was too quote unquote busy to engage in that kind of indulgence of remembering his past, of feeling nostalgic. And I think this is a theme that we all can relate to in the modern day of being too busy, quote unquote, for self-reflection or for reflection on any part of our lives for that matter. And yet reflection is so important because it catalyzes change as we saw with Scrooge. There's also the role of nostalgia here. I read somewhere, I wish I could remember where it was to link it, but the role of nostalgia uh, there's a study that indicated that nostalgia was helpful for actually starting to heal your brain and to heal your emotional processes. So when you go back in time, when you're nostalgic about something, it gives you good hormones, good vibes, and starts to heal you emotionally that way from things like loneliness, from desperation, for example. But on the flip side of things, memory is subjective. That's why in order to get a comprehensive understanding of an event like, for example, 9-11, you have to look at so many different aspects, so many different people in, in those types of events. Um, and memory changes as well. So when you access a memory, it changes because it's left vulnerable to the surface. It's almost like, I think of it like a chest. And if you have a bunch of, you know, nice garments, wool garments, cashmere garments in the chest, right? The chest protects them from the elements of the world. Let's say you go camping, you bring the chest with you for some reason, and you leave the chest outside in the middle of the snow and you start to open it and you're rooting through the garments to find this one red cashmere sweater. When you open the chest, those garments are now exposed, especially the cashmere sweater, which you leave on top of the chest. And naturally, as a course that follows, those garments will start to change because of their exposure to the elements. So there's this amazing relationship that Dickens is able to set up with regard to remembrance and nostalgia. On the one hand, memories being very useful and cathartic for us and useful as a catalyst for getting us ready for self-reflection and therefore for change, but also as something that is almost sacred in that sense. When you access them, you know they're going to change. You know that they're subjective in that sense. So there's a cost to them. And finally, spirituality. What I found 
fascinating about Scrooge's relationship with spirituality was that he goes from unbelieving, he doesn't believe, he sees sort of Marley's face in a door knob or door knocker at the beginning when he first comes home, he sees Marley's face and he's, you know, agitated, he starts locking all the doors and all these things, and then when he actually sees Marley's ghost, he still doesn't believe it, and it takes Marley's jaw falling off for him to actually start remembering and believing that it is Marley and that it is his ghost. So he goes from this state of disbelief or unbelief to being totally changed in that regard. And I think in that sense also this theme of spirituality brings up another set of relationships, but this time more metaphorical or perhaps more categorical uh, to belief and to truth, right? Our relationships. Um, and it got me thinking about how many things we believe because we're obliged to believe them, not because we actually put in the work to believe those things. It seems like Scrooge had no choice but to go along with the ghosts, but that's because he believed he had no choice but to go along with them. Of course, if he had, you know, re refused outright to have the ghosts visit him, we would not have the Christmas Carol as a story, but <laughs> regardless, that's an interesting thing to think about. And the common sense view of spirituality in that sense is the act of turning away from people in order to seek the great unknown, in order to seek solitude. But what ends up, interestingly, happening in this short story, and I think in real life, is that spirituality actually points us back towards people, towards connection, as it did with Scrooge. Solitude and reflection as in the case of the first ghost, only give rise to an enhanced ability and understanding of how to connect with people, how to build relationships with people, and Dickens does an absolutely masterful job of reflecting that in the reality of the text. Thank you so much for your time and for your attention today as we went through our first December Dickens novella of the 2021 December Dickens series. I hope you enjoyed it. Please leave your comments, questions, all of that. You can review our podcast on iTunes, that helps a lot. And I will see you next week for the second novella. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.
Without further ado, today's read embodies the full spirit of December Dickens. It is A Christmas Carol in Five Staves by, Decem- by Charles Dickens. 